Well, thank you again for the opportunity to be with you. We continue to make our journey through the book of James. For those of you who have been here uh, and heard me over these months, um, got into chapter 3 today. And uh, an interesting passage, perhaps uh, a wee bit surprising for a, a Sunday morning service, but uh, this is what James is writing. At one point, I took a decision to go back into industry again after about 33, 34 years of, of, of mission work. And uh, I got a job and, uh, with a fairly large company. I better not name any names, but they had a value statement. And uh, at the top of the value statement was, our greatest asset is our employees, our staff. It's a wonderful statement, isn't it? You think that companies would, would stand up to that and really appreciate those who are in their employ. But then I quickly discovered that if uh, somewhere up there in the higher echelons of the, the company, they decided that they were going to downsize, uh, very quickly, uh, those people that were supposedly held in high value uh, got a notice to say you're no longer required. And uh, it was almost, you know, within 24 hours they were gone. And I used to think that's a bit strange, you know, our values are these. And yet in practice we can go against it so quickly. Just uh, in the news these days, you've probably, those of you who follow the news, there's a large accounting firm that finds itself in a bit of strife. Uh, again, I better not name it. But this is the official corporate document. Our high standards of ethical behavior are fundamental to everything we do. Our values define who we are, what we stand for, and how we behave. Wonderful, it's great. You know, this is the mission statement, this is the value statement. And then at a conference in Melbourne last year, the former CEO of this company boasted of their inclusive culture which embraces differences, one that allows us to live our values every day, be ourselves and feel empowered to realize and discover our potential. What more would you want? And then we discover that in the background, hidden away, this company has had practices that allegedly are criminal. Saying one thing, being and doing another. It's so easy to fall into that, isn't it? James found that there was a potential in the churches to which he was writing. And uh, he writes this, Not many of you should become teachers, that is, masters, my brothers, for you know that, what, that, you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. In other words, if you are putting yourself forward to be a teacher a master in any way, your life and your behavior better match up. And that is a frightening thing for any preacher, let me tell you. 
uh, to stand in front of you and talk that way. As though, you know, I'm above all that. I am not. And there is a great danger for any one of us to be in a position where we want to teach, we want to express particular thoughts, but somewhere along the line, perhaps hidden, perhaps away from church life, our lives are very different, and we live, as it were, two lives. Well, says James, you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness and indeed, when it happens, when it is known that someone who purports to be a master uh, has done something wrong and it becomes common knowledge. For we all stumble in many ways, says James. He's a realist. He's not a perfect man, although he was honored in the church in his day. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, see that? In what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. James is really stating something that is impossible for us. He says, it's possible that if you can do this, you will be a perfect man. But that is beyond our capability, as we'll see as we go through. And he uses this picture of bridling the body. Um, back in James chapter 1, those of you who remember, um, James writes this, If anyone thinks he is religious, but does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. There again is that relationship of what we are saying and what we are doing or how we are um, um, behaving. And James goes on in this passage to use quite a number of images relating to the tongue. He actually is, is following a pattern of teaching which uh, we came across uh, working in the subcontinent, uh, and I know in the Middle East it's, it's fairly common too, in that the, the, the person who is speaking has a particular uh, message he wants to get across, and he comes at it from a number of different directions. It's like watching the cricket or watching football, you know, a score is made or a six is, uh, happens or uh, somebody is, is bowled out. Afterwards, the television cameras will show you a number of, of different angles, all looking at the same thing to prove the point. Yes, this is a good goal, or it's a fair out, or whatever. And James really picks that up. It's very common in teaching, um, as I say, in, in parts of the world. And James is using that now. He uses many illustrations, common things that people would exactly know what he was talking about. And uh, he uses them to illustrate his point. The first one would be that of the horse and the ship. Verse 3, he says, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Talking of the bridle. Uh, and that's that uh, whole mechanism of the bit and the rein that's in the horse's mouth. Again, 
Everybody would know exactly what James was talking about. We might not find it so common. I don't know if many of you have ridden a horse or whatever. Uh, I've done it on one or t once or twice in my life, but I know what it means. And that is, a horse is a strong animal. We talk about horsepower. It's a strong animal. And yet when someone sits on its back and has that bit and bridle in its mouth of the rein, it can control that power. And that's what James is, is, is saying here. If we, we have many powers. The tongue is a powerful uh, organ of the body. But it needs to be brought under control. And if we can do that, if we are able to do it perfectly, then our whole lives are in control. The tongue guides the body. But he moves on and he says, but if we put, uh, look at the ships, though they are so large, and we see many large ships lying off in Gage Roads there, just off the coast, these great ships travel the world and they are guided by a small part, by a rudder. They are large, so large, and are driven by strong winds. They are guided by a very small rudder in comparison wherever the will of the pilot directs. Again, it's that same picture of a powerful piece of equipment, powerful machine, a ship, large ship, being driven along but guided by a small part. The tongue is a small part of the body, but it has immense power. And James, writing this, intends that, and he adds that little bit here, the ship will go wherever the person guides it. And here again is that personal responsibility that falls on each one of us. Not to let our tongues run free, but to have them in control. And again, James is setting this out. And he says, so the tongue is a small member. It's a small part of our body, but it boasts of many things. It boasts of many great things. There's a, a saying I picked up recently, I read it somewhere, uh, and it really applies to people as ancient as me. It says, the older I get, the better I was. Huh? As you look back over your life and your experiences of life, uh, you, you tend to uh, think, oh yeah, I was pretty good back then. Uh, the trouble is that when we were back then, we probably weren't as good as we, as we should be. I, I, I think it's strange these days as you, you go for a new job, you, you almost have to boast about your abilities. Um, you've got to present yourself, you know, put yourself forward and what you can do. You're speaking out, you're giving words. And the wonder of many employers are disappointed when they take that person on according to their word and they find that they're, well, maybe not quite as experienced as we had hoped. And that's one of the reasons why, of course, you have a trial period so that you can prove your word. Uh, and that uh, uh, you, you, your words actually measure up to your activity. Speech is often loose. Most men set less care for, uh, care, uh, 
Most men are less careful in controlling their lips than of their actions. Less careful of controlling their lips or their actions. It would be wiser to watch what's going on inside uh, and then to control your lips. Idle words, rash words, unconsidered words, free-flowing words make up much of our conversation. We're speaking without our minds being engaged. His tongue ran away with him is a kind of uh, expression we often use. We say to a person, oh, just make sure your brain's engaged before you put your, your tongue into action. In other words, set control on what you're saying. Make sure your brain is engaged. It's hard but possible, and it's needful to guide the helm to keep the ship on its course and to keep the horse under control. That's the first image that James used, images really of the horse and the ship. The second major one would be the forest fire. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our, mom, uh, um, among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Strong statement, isn't it? The tongue is a fire. And we know this, the way that we can use our tongues to cause great damage. Again, if it's not in control, we can say things about people to someone that we're having a conversation with and they pick that up and say why oh, did you hear what Moffat said about so and so and on it goes and it multiplies and it multiplies and it multiplies and how before long a person's reputation can be absolutely spoiled by a single word or two Spoken that should not be spoken. A fire, a wildfire. We know the image, don't we? Uh, quite often, I mean, even driving along the road, you'll find all of a sudden there's a, a, the grass fire on either side of you. Somebody who's been smoking a cigarette flicks it out the, the car window and uh, you know, it, just, it lies there and before long it's, a fire starts. In the old days when... Uh, the, the locomotives were steam locomotives and they were uh, driven by, by, by a coal-powered uh, coal engine. Sparks used to fly out. And fires would often be set up after a train has gone past. And there a spark is there. And a fire starts. And many a forest fire has been started by a spark. There was one fairly recently, wasn't there? Wasn't it somebody using an angle grinder that they shouldn't have done and sparks flew off the angle grinder 
And uh, uh, I think that was down at Yarloop, wasn't it? The, uh, the, the fire down there started by sparks. And yet a whole township, small as it was, really was destroyed. And James says, that's exactly what your tongue can do. Exactly what your tongue can do. Our speech can do a lot of good, but it seems to excel in evil action. What harm, what damage will arise from spreading scandal, as I've said, from spreading lies and falsehood and blasphemy and obscenity, from spreading error? How many arguments and contentions, strifes and wars and suspicions and enmities and alienations among friends and neighbors are produced from uncontrolled lips. Words can start wars. Words can destroy marriages. Words can alienate children. Words can destroy a church fellowship. Words can be a forest fire. Who can number the evils produced by the honeyed words of a seducer or the tongue of the eloquent to maintain an error? You know, it's an error, but if I, if I speak well enough, I can maintain that error. If all men were dumb, someone has written, if all men were dumb, many crimes of the world would soon cease. If all men would speak only that which ought to be spoken, what a change would come over the face of human affairs. And that is so true. The tongue is a fire. Another image that uh, James uses as he's pressing his point is that of the untamable wild beast. For every kind of beast and bird, reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But here it comes again. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. It is amazing, isn't it, how we are able to tame many wild animals. In fact, if you've got a pet at home, I don't know if you have, but at one time it was a wild animal. Uh, but it has been tamed. And uh, people do amazing things, taming animals. You know, anybody that's been to a circus, they don't do it so much these days. But even lions can be tamed to follow instructions. Yeah. Even the fish of the sea. You know, if you go, fish, go swimming in, in, in the ocean and there's a, there are small fish there, they will, they will scatter from you. They will move away. But put one of those same fish into a fish tank and it will soon learn that when you come close, it will be up at the glass there, opening its mouth, looking to be fed. That's what happens. We, we, we're able to do that. Amazing things, taming animals. Again, just recently, uh, there was a, uh, I can't remember what kind of uh, whale it was, or sorry, shark, um, uh, just off the coast of Scandinavia, being trained by a navy somewhere to act as a spy. We can do that. 
But we can't tame the tongue. It's beyond us. And not only can't we tame it, James says it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. That is, it acts on the happiness of man and on the peace of society as a poison does to the human frame. The, the, the picture here is it's like the bite of a venomous snake. That's what the tongue can be like. Writing to the Romans, uh, the Apostle Paul says this, talking about mankind, it's not talking about particular people, but talking about mankind in general. With their tongues, they have used deceit, the poison of apps is under their lips. The apse is, that's a picture of an apse there on the slide. It's a venomous snake. The poison of apse is under their lips. And nothing would be better to describe the mischief that may be done by the tongue than this. There is no sting of a serpent that doesn't do so much evil in the world. There is no poison more deadly to the frame than the poison of the tongue is to the happiness of man. I'm not painting a very nice picture of your tongue, am I? This is what James is doing. He's setting it out. Okay, it may not be uh, that, 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 that you recognize it quite as intensely as that, but James is pointing out the potential of it all. Who can stand before the power of the slanderer? What mischief can be done in society that can be, can be compared with that which he may do? Poison. Poison that is deadly. Um, we, we go to, whoops, where are we at? Sorry, let me go back. Can you take it back a bit? Sorry. Take it back to image number four, the fountain. Thanks. With our tongue, we bless our, our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. For from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. With our tongues, we bless our God and Father. And with it we curse people made in the image of God. Can you honestly say that every expression you have made, every speech that you have made to someone is exactly what you are thinking in your mind? Can you honestly say that Everything that I've said to someone's face is exactly what I'm thinking about them, even as I'm saying it. That's how duplicitous we can be. That's how two-faced we can be. That's how fort-tongued we can be. Saying one thing but thinking another. 
James says, you know, we can, we can bless God our Father and we've sung his praises today, but we can harbor evil thoughts about, another, about someone. And dare I say it, we can have, harbor false and wrong thoughts about someone who sits alongside us in the congregation of God's people. This ought not to be, says James. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. These things ought not to be. And he goes on to say, Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And he's looking into the heart and mind of man and he's saying there is something wrong here somewhere. If you're not in control of your tongue, there's something wrong. We can't expect if we have impurity in our lives to always put that Pure word out there in pure action. Writing, or, uh, speaking, our Lord says this in Matthew chapter 12. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So what is within us is that that is coming out. And for the imperfect man, what comes out is not always pure. It may sound pure, but behind it there is evil intent. I tell you, says Jesus, and this is uh, a strong statement, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That small member of your body, that tongue that you have, the utter speech, it is of such importance to you that it will face a severe judgment in the day that is yet to be. Well, it's strong language that James uses. Uh, as I say, it's, um, it's frightening almost. But we don't give up hope. Jonathan Edwards, the great uh, American uh, Puritan preacher, uh, he drew a picture of how things work for us. And basically he's saying this, the words that we utter, we utter spring from the heart. That is the seed of the emotions. So we see something, we hear something, and our heart responds with emotion, right? The, the, the words we utter spring from the heart. The heart motivated by good or evil stirs the mind into thoughts 
So I see something and I'm attracted to it. I pass that on to my mind and my mind says, well, should I or shouldn't I? And the mind is there to interpret the emotion and decide whether it's good to follow that emotion or not. And so if you go to buy something, if you buy it purely on the emotion, when you get home, you might say, oh no, why did I do that? Whereas you go to buy something and you say, well, I like it, but is it right for me? Do I really need it? The mind is in action. And the mind then will determine what the action is. And it feeds the tongue. Can you see the, the process that's going on? It's a simple picture. I know it's a wee bit more complicated than that. But basically this is what happens. The words we utter spring from the heart. The heart, motivated by good or evil, stirs the mind into thoughts that generate the words heard from the lips. And there's where the control needs to be. Well, how do we apply this? Where, what hope is there? Well, we remember the words of, of Jeremiah. Here we go. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The heart, according to Jonathan Edwards, the words we utter spring from the heart. And yet we know from scripture that the heart is a deceitful thing. It is corrupted by sin. And that's why we need a change of heart. That's why we need what the scripture calls a new birth. That's why we need this heart of stone as it's, decide, as it's, uh, um, um, as it's the word's gone from my mouth. <laughs> uh, uh, why, why it needs to be changed, how it's described, how it needs to be changed. And that is where the new birth comes. As we put our trust in the Lord Jesus, recognizing that deep within us this evil exists, this sinful state that needs to be changed. And only through faith and trust in Jesus do we know that we are given a new heart, a new birth. And so that seat of our emotions is changed. We are made new creatures in Christ Jesus. The heart is changed. So instead now of it producing only evil, we know that it will be emoted towards that which pleases God. And what of the mind? What of the mind? We, remind, we uh, are, often read these uh, verses that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, etc. You know all this. You know, we often apply this to our behavior. But as I was thinking of this today, I thought, how would it be if we applied it to the tongue? It's part of our behavior. In other words, we are asking the Holy Spirit to so act on our minds 
and our minds that are producing the words that we speak if we are in control and under the control of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit will be clearly seen and perceived in the words that we speak. And so we go through this. We speak in a loving way. That's the fruit of the Spirit. We speak in a joyful way. Well, why not? We have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus. We've been brought from a sinful state into a state of acceptance before a holy God. We speak of joy. We speak of peace. Peace. Not division. Not putting people down. Peaceful. Patience. Do our tongues run away with us at times? And we express thoughts that indicate we are an impatient person. The fruit of the Spirit is patience. And it would be seen in our tongues. Kindness. A kind word goes a long way. An unkind word destroys. Kindness. Goodness. We speak only of that that is good. Not of what is evil. Gentleness. We don't have an abrasive spirit. We don't speak out in anger. We are gentle. We are self-controlled. Our, our, our minds are engaged under the influence of the Spirit of God. This is the kind of speech that James looks for. And you know, again, it's something that is supplied to us by the work of the Spirit of God. This gracious outpouring of the gift of grace through the Spirit. Against such things there is no law, writes the Apostle Paul. Such is the speech that we have. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Friends, we are called to be people who speak with grace, with kindness and goodness. We are called to be people who by the work of the Spirit have a control over our lives, a control over our words. And that's what we long to do in order that our speech may be gracious, able to give a great account for all the goodness that the Lord has heaped upon us and we do so to his praise. Let's pray together. Lord, we recall your servant David of old who was able to reflect on the fact that before a word was on his tongue, you knew it fully and altogether. Nothing was hidden from you. The motivation of the words, the spirit of the words, the desire of the words, 
were known to you. And Lord, it is with us also as we speak from day to day, nothing is hidden. Lord, we know we can hide motivation from others even as we speak, but nothing is hidden from you. And so we would echo again David's words, search me, O Lord, and know my heart and see if there be any wicked way within me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Lord, we pray this with thankfulness, knowing that you are a God who is able to do for us more than we ask or think. Grant that as we go into our world in this week, Father, that we will be true heralds of the grace and glory of our gods, true heralds of the gospel, true witnesses for Christ, true to our word, true to you. Through Jesus Christ, the Lord, we ask it. Amen.